Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you that as we approach you today that we are able to hear from you, that your word says that your spirit speaks to us through your word. And so we can trust that uh, that you have a word for us today, that no matter where we are, no matter what things we're struggling with, that you uh, are personally able to speak to us by your spirit, through your word, uh, through me. And so I thank you for um, for the folly of preaching that somehow, some way, you're able to use a person to, to communicate words of life and truth and grace and mercy and conviction and all those things to us. And so we listen closely this morning for you to speak to us. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, we read earlier the truth uh, that John 6.66, many people who were following Jesus at some point just said, we're done. We're not following you anymore The words that you're speaking, the truths that you're sharing, the things that you're declaring to us, that we don't want to hear this any longer, and so they walked away. Uh, Paul wrote to Timothy to be careful. He said, listen, in the the end times, look at verses 4, chapter chapter 4, verses 1 through 2, the Spirit expressly says, that's the Holy Spirit speaking to Paul, says that in later times, some will depart from the faith. That is, they are with us, they're in here with us, they're in the church, they're confessing believers, they've walked an aisle, they've been baptized, maybe they teach Sunday school, maybe they uh, in some way serve, but they're with us, but at some point they're not going to be with us any longer. They will depart from the faith by devoting themselves to deceitful spirits and teachings of demons through the insincerity of liars whose consciences are seared. In the same way, in the book of Jude, if you flip over to the short one chapter verse, uh, 25 verses in this little letter uh, of Jude, we have in verse 3 through 4, Jude saying, Beloved, although I was very eager to write to you about our common salvation, I found it necessary to write appealing to you to contend for the faith that was once for all delivered to the saints. Just pause there. You get the picture. Jude was about to write a letter. He wanted his recipients. He wanted to share different elements about the faith. But he said, I I had to write to you to contend for the faith because something happened. There are many things he could have said, maybe many things he wanted to say. But the most important thing he could say was to reiterate the gospel and its truths, the faith. He wanted to share with them what it means to be a Christ follower and what it doesn't in light of things that were happening. In a lot of ways, uh, I could stand up here this morning and say, Beloved, I wanted to share a sermon with you on the hope in Jesus Christ in spite of the rising floodwaters of Houston. I, wanted, I could have stood up here and said, uh, we're, it, it's critically important for us to be the church, to go there with food and with clothing and with supplies and to deliver all those things, that would have been a well-timed message. Uh, I could have also stood up this morning and said uh, in complete condemnation that there is no place in biblical Christianity for any sort of white supremacist uh, or racism. None of that can exist in the church. That would have been a timely message. I could have stood up and said uh, a number of things that would have been timely. Uh, in, in those ways, and in all those expressions, people in our culture are struggling with the message of the Bible. Just this past week, on Tuesday, I believe it was, 
group of church leaders uh, through an organization called the Coalition for the Council for Biblical Manhood and Womanhood published a statement that described 14 articles or so uh, approving and denying certain things that our culture approves of. That is about homosexuality and transgenderism and other things like that. And in this statement, it it became just a lightning rod of an issue. And I could stand up here today and tell you how I defend the Nashville Statement or some things that I disagree with about it. But I could do all those things. But what's most important today, Jude said, I could have written to you about a lot of things and I was eager, but it's most important for you to understand the gospel. You see, as a pastor, if, if I'm not equipping you with the gospel, this is how this works. We have people in our church who are passionate about fostering children. And so if I were to become an advocate in their corner and I were to stop preaching the gospel but only start to preach to them and take up their mission and preach to all of us about the importance of fostering, at some point we would become a foster church like an organization and we would cease to be a church, which is a gospel Organization. I could stand up here and champion adoption ministry. I could stand up and champion uh, the, the rights for minorities in our culture. But as soon as I stop preaching the gospel, we cease to become a church. And we start to become a social justice organization that does good, not discounting those things, But my role is to equip you with the gospel. And as you're equipped with the gospel, the gospel begins to penetrate you. And then you, the members of this church, Ephesians 2 says to equip the saints for the work of ministry. Sorry, Ephesians 4. And so as you go out equipped in the gospel, then the gospel has an expression in your life, whether it's through adoption ministries, whether it's through minority ministries, whether it's through homeless ministries, whether it's through fostering ministries, whether it's through pregnancy ministries. The gospel, as you you see how this works, the gospel, you understand it as it comes from this pulpit, that you have a clear understanding of how the gospel changes you, and then you are the change agent in our culture. It's not for me to stand up here and to declare all the different goods that we can be doing. I declare the gospel. And once we have the gospel right and the doctrine right, then it permeates into your lives. As Jesus begins to well up in your life, He calls you somewhere to do something. And you are gospel carriers because you have been infected with the gospel, right? In a good way. But Jude is writing because some people have snuck into their church and listen to the gospel that they preach in verse 3 and 4. Jude says, I was eager to write to you about our salvation and I found it necessary though to write to you to contend for the faith, that is the gospel, that was once for all delivered to the saints. Because some people have crept into your church, basically, unnoticed, And long ago, they were designated for this condemnation. They're ungodly people. They pervert the grace of God into sensuality. And they deny our only master and Lord Jesus Christ. All right, key phrase there. They are uh, perverting the grace of God, saying basically that, hey, isn't God's grace amazing? That he will always forgive you? And so you can pretty much live however you want to. 
You can watch what you want, you can say what you want, you can drink what you want, you can, you can indulge in whatever you want to, and how awesome is the gospel that Jesus Christ will always be there because of his death on the cross. There is plenty of grace. You can never out his grace. And so they're saying that, that they, you can live any way you want, and the way they were doing it is in sensuality. And so Jude is saying, and by so doing, they pervert God's grace... They pervert it, saying that uh, you can live any way you want, and so they deny, and he uses two phrases here, our Master and Lord. Our Master and Lord. Basically denying that Jesus has any say over their life. So when Jesus convicts you of a sin, of something that you uh, know that the Word condemns, and you say, I'm going to do it anyway because there's grace, you're in a dangerous position. You're in a dangerous position. You deny that Jesus is your master when you willfully, rebelliously, continuously walk sinfully. You deny it. You deny it with your words. You deny it with your actions. And so this was the danger. And so this is what Jude was trying to get across. He says a lot of things, but I've summarized the passages on your sheet. So look down at Jude verse 8. He says, in like manner, these people also, they rely on their dreams, they defile the flesh, they reject authority, and they blaspheme the glorious ones. How do you know what these guys look like? They rely on, I, I, I dreamed a dream, and God said that we should just go and do this. And, and angels said that it's okay for us to live this way. And it's, it's, it's in this way that they are led, not by the word, not by those teachers and pastors and leaders that God has placed over them, but they are basically rogue believers relying not on the authority of Scripture, not on the authority of God's structure and His authorities, but they rely on their dreams. And so doing so, they are able to defile their flesh. They reject authority and blaspheme glorious ones. Look down at verses 12 and 13. It says, These people are hidden reefs. What does that mean? Well, you can't see a reef and it causes a shipwreck. If you're uh, sailing in a boat and you don't see the reef and you hit it, it will destroy your boat. These people are like hidden reefs. And I don't want you to miss the point. They're right here in the room with us. They're in the church. They are with us at this moment, believing that the gospel, the grace, the good news is a license for them to live sensually any way they want to. There's a reason why Paul says to have nothing to do with them. They are hidden reefs. They feast without fear. They are shepherds feeding themselves. They are waterless clouds swept along by winds. Fruitless trees, twice dead and uprooted. They are wild waves of the sea, casting up the foam of their own shame. Wandering stars for whom the gloom of utter darkness has been reserved forever. Do you see the kind of people that he's describing? Listen to the key words. Hidden reefs, uh, shepherds feeding themselves, waterless Clouds, fruitless people, twice dead, uprooted, waves, casting up the foam of shame, wandering. In all these ways, they are not anchor points by which our gospel has been presented to us and we understand it. It comes down through godly people who bear the fruit of repentance, who are submitted to the authority of the church and the authority of the word. And they're in all these ways under the submission uh, and the structures that God has given. 
verse 17 through 25 of Jude. But you must remember, beloved, the predictions of the apostles of our Lord Jesus Christ. They said to you, in the last time there will be scoffers, people following their own ungodly passions. These are the ones who cause divisions. They're worldly people. That is, they don't look like the people of faith presented in the word. They look like the culture around them. They are devoid of the Spirit. Jude gives us these strong, strong warnings. And he's not talking about people out in the world, unbelievers. He's talking about those who have been baptized, maybe. They take the Lord's Supper. They they serve. They work. They give. They pray. They do all these things. And yet, Paul and Jude and even Jesus describe a time when those who are with us are no longer there. And so in in an effort to contend for the faith, I just want to remind you of the gospel. And so I've provided for you a handout. And it's got six panels, uh, six different images. And we're just going to briefly walk through that so that you can be reminded of the gospel. And at the end of that, I'm going to give you a choice of one of five positions that could describe where you are. And I just, I don't want you to think about somebody else. And I also don't want you to say, I've heard this before. Uh, you know, this is, this is kind of old news. I've seen this before. But I want you just to, in the sincerity of your heart, say, God, am I one of these people that Jude is describing? Have I perverted the grace of God so that I can live however I want to and still expecting to be saved on the last day? I want you to take a time for self-assessment so that we can understand the gospel as it is. And it starts with this idea that God created Adam and Eve. And he created them in the beginning as the Lord of their life, as the God over all the universe, over all things created. He spoke all things into existence. And so this crown represents the fact that God has lordship and ownership over humanity that he created. And he created them to be in a relationship with him, and he gave them responsibilities to live in the garden and to work it. So they have authority. He was able to, Adam and Eve, where Adam was able to name all the animals and to, to classify them in all those ways. And so God uh, and man were working together, man under God's lordship, under his kingship, doing um, the work that God had given them to do to subdue the earth, to fill the earth, to populate it, and all those things. But you know what happened. Um, the serpent came along, and the, Satan came along in the form of a serpent, and they were in the Garden of Eden, and God said, I've given for you every tree here for, fruit, for food. There's only one tree that you can't eat of, and it's the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And so the serpent comes along, and he tempts them, and he says, listen, you don't have to follow God's rules. As a matter of fact, you can be just like God, who knows good and evil, All you have to do is eat this fruit and you'll be like him yourself and you won't need him anymore. And so Adam and Eve, any of us in that situation would have done the same thing. So don't be too hard on Adam and Eve. But they take the fruit and by doing so, they enter into a course of treason. Have you ever thought, they just ate fruit, man. I mean, how how bad could this be? Why is God so strict on them for eating fruit? But it's not just the fact that they ate fruit. It's why they did what they did. Satan said, if you eat this fruit, you'll be like God, and you won't need him any longer. And so they did. They ate the fruit in rebellion, and this caused this huge division between God and man. They were broken. Romans 6.23 says in the second panel there, I believe, 
It says that the wages of sin is death. So this is what we experience. If you've ever lived any length of time outside of Christ, if you were converted to Christ later in life, and you uh, experienced uh, living a worldly life, you understand that there's no blessing out there. It's only death, only emptiness, only disappointment, only shame, only frustration, only guilt, only all of those things that you thought would bring you life ended up bringing you to this point of death. And so the Bible says that the, the wages, that is the, the paycheck, if you do work, you get a paycheck. And so the Bible says that the paycheck for your treason against God is death. Death in the Bible is separation from God. Adam and Eve ate the fruit. God said, you will surely die. They ate the fruit and they, they didn't die, right? They didn't die physically, but they died spiritually. They were completely cut off from God. So the next part of that verse, we all experience this death. We all experience this separation from God. It's why oftentimes you pray and you just feel like God doesn't hear you anymore. And he's not listening any longer. Or, or you're, there's a distance. There's not an intimacy between you and God. And so that distance that you feel is this separation caused by your sin. But the rest of that verse, 623, says the wages of sin is death, but the gift, the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus. So God offers us life. He sees the situation, the rebellious, separated state that we're in, and he offers us life. Now, we're crafty people because as sinful, rebellious people, we still can look back here and say, hey, a gift, eternal life. I like gifts and I like life. And so I want those things, but I kind of want to do it my own way. So in an effort for man to get these gifts, they try to build these bridges like moralism. I'm a good person. I'm a good person, so I deserve this gift of life. Uh, I'm a, a moral person. I do good works. I give, I serve, I go to church. I, maybe, I, maybe I'm not a Christian, but I do things that are nice for people. So all of these works should be sufficient enough to get me across to get what God is offering. Some people go through means of other religions. Some people use things like philosophy. My fat marker didn't really make those clear on the picture that you got, but that's what those stand for. Moralism, works, religions, or philosophies. There's a variety of ways that we try to get the things that God is offering. But this is no different than saying, I would love to go to heaven to see all my friends and my family and a paradise, and, and I would be cool with heaven even if Jesus and God weren't there. And yet, at the same time, if, if heaven was only worshiping God, many of us would think, I don't know if I want to go there. I'll take the cool stuff, if I can fly, if I can like travel to other worlds and see all my friends and family forever. I can take heaven without Jesus. That's this idea right here. I still want to be, a, I still want to be the king of my own life, but I also want the good stuff that God offers. It just doesn't work that way. And so the remedy that God offers, knowing that we would want what he's offering, uh, he offers us a way, one way to receive the gift that he offers. And the rest of that verse says, the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus. And so the cross becomes the bridge by which we're able to receive the gift that God offers. It's only through Christ. John 10, 10 says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father but through me. I think that's John 14, 6. Um, 
No one comes to the Father but through me. So Jesus becomes the only way. And there's a prescribed way that we get to him. Uh, the Bible says that John the Baptist came preaching, repent, right? That means turn around, go, change your mind, do different. <laughs> and so when Jesus came along, you would think that he was cooler than John the Baptist, but Jesus came and his message was repent. Jesus didn't come sprinkling happy dust all over everybody's lifestyle and say, everything's cool. Just do your thing and I'm going to be full of love. No, Jesus came preaching, repent. Jesus came saying, you are treasonous and you must repent. And so the process of repentance for us looks like halting in our treason and our rebelliousness and saying, God, I can't do this my own way. I need you. And beginning to seek the Lord, and beginning to walk in ways where we might find him, go to church and pray and read the scriptures and all those things, we begin to repent and we can repent all the way to a point where we're right here at this line. Sorry, my drawing is hard to see. That's a line, and this person has repented all the way to the point that they're still the Lord of their own life because they failed to do the second thing that Jesus said. He came preaching, repent and believe. And when he says believe, what he's describing is a transfer of trust by which a person says, Jesus, you are the master and Lord of my life. Remember Jude 3? They deny our only master and Lord Jesus Christ. Jesus, when he becomes the Lord of your life, when you transfer your trust onto Jesus, you notice that this terrible drawing of this stick figure doesn't have a crown on his head. He has fully surrendered his life to Jesus. That means that it's not his language anymore. That means it's not his eyes anymore. It means it's not his body anymore. It means it's not his wallet anymore. It means it's not his, it's not his life anymore. He has given it to Jesus. And by giving all those things to Jesus, Jesus calls the shots in his life. And in this relationship, he will lead you to do things that you would probably never do before. You want me to give what? You want me to serve where? You want me to go to who? You want me to forgive the person who did this to me? You want me to stop doing the things that I'm doing? That's the idea behind lordship. And so I'm going to ask you on the final panel, uh, it gives you five options. The five positions are this. I am an active treasonous rebellion. I don't believe a thing you're saying, Gibson. I don't even believe there's a God or a tooth fairy, or a whatever you call them, flying spaghetti monster, whatever. I don't believe any of that stuff. I'm doing things my own way. This is just some sort of thing created by people to keep people in submission or whatever. Okay, that's a position of rebellion. Number two is that you can be in a process of repentance. Hey, I know I've lived a rebellious life, and it is brought, it's done terrible for me. My life feels empty and broken, and I need something, and I'm seeking God. That's this position of repentance. I'm going to start praying. I'm going to start reading. I'm going to start investigating. This is where a good number of people are in churches. They've not given their life to Christ. They're still investigating. And that's why when you look around side to side, you should not be too hard on the people around you. Because they're in process, many of them. 
They are, they are not sanctified, growing believers. They are somewhere in this process, but they may be in a process of repentance. And it could be a, a loving word from you, an accepting word, a, an invitation to lunch, an invitation to dinner. I was sitting in a Bible class in 1993 with a Bible class major. And I looked over and I said, I've been asking a lot of people this question lately. When did you give your life to Christ? And, and how, how did that look like for you? And this person looked back at me and said, I've heard, a lot of people ask me that lately. And I don't know. I don't know what you're talking about. And so we met later that night and described this whole thing. And that person gave their life to Christ. But it was different because they were in the Bible class, the last place I expected to do evangelism. So you could be in this process of repentance. The third place, probably the worst place ever. They're all pretty bad, but religious is this place right here where you're really close to Christ. You're really good morally. You do all the right things. You go to church. You carry a Bible. You go to, go to all the classes. You probably memorize a lot of verses. You can say all those things, but, but you've never really transferred trust to Jesus. That is... He is not the Lord of your life. You, the crown is still firmly on your own head. You, you, you rarely ask him what he wants of you. You're very often saying, what can he give me? Or what, how can this benefit me? But in no way is this a submitted position. Matter of fact, Jesus said in Matthew 7, 21 through 23, not everybody who says, Lord, Lord, will go to heaven, but only the one who does believe the will of my Father. The one who does it is the one who has faith, who transfers the trust. And Jesus said, many people are going to say to me on that day, but didn't I do good stuff? Didn't I go to church? And didn't I do good things? And Jesus will say to me, away from me, you evil person. I never knew you. You know, it was religious people that crucified Jesus. The most religious people of the day were the ones who cried out, crucify him. The crowd was ready to let him go. The the Roman authorities scourged him and they were ready to let him go. But if you read carefully, it's those who were most religious. Those who knew the word the best were the ones who stirred up the crowd and said, release to us Barabbas. We'll take that murderer over Jesus, crucify him. And so the worst place that you could be is this position of, I'm good, I know it all, I, I know what I'm doing, but you still firmly wear the crown on your own head. Jesus is not the Lord of your life. That's who Jude is talking about. That's who Paul is talking about to Timothy in that passage that we read in Timothy. And so in all these ways, the greatest position to be is position four, which is in a trusted relationship with Jesus where he is the Lord of your life. That's the best place, the safest place, the most blessed place, the place that is able to receive the gift that is able to have a relationship with God and able to do so for eternity because they've come to him on his terms and allowed him to live life through them. Does that make sense? 2 Corinthians 5, you were bought with a price, right? He purchased you on the cross. When he said to tell us die, it means that the work was finished and here's the receipt, I purchased them. And so our lives can't be our own. That's what the gospel says, is that when you come to Jesus in faith, you're willing to bow the knee and surrender this relationship should be a surrendered, repentant life. Not that you're going to be perfect from here on out, but that you're going to be in a process of repentance and surrender and relationship forever. Uh, John 15 is another verse that I put on your 
sheet there that describes this abiding, remaining in Christ lifestyle. The final position I added really just this morning is the position of rejection. And I only add it because our passage today, uh, Jesus described in John 6, those who used to follow him but don't anymore. They, at some point they walked in the church and then they rejected him. And this is where many people will be in this room, uh, that someday there will be fewer seats available. <laughs> because as our culture continues to be antagonistic toward Christianity, as our culture continues to say, we don't want anything to do with your bigoted, hateful religion that calls my lifestyle sin, there will be many more believers who say, you know what, they're right. And so they will, John 66, they will turn the leave. Interesting thing about the diagram here is that Jesus would say that these were never really believers in the first place. They, they never really crossed this line of trust. They were really just on the edge here looking to see what can Jesus do for me. If I follow him, will he grow my business? If I follow him, will I have a, a, a better reputation? If I follow him, will, I, will it benefit me in some way? Will I be able to have answered prayer and a comfortable lifestyle? Well, you can tell that, uh, you know, in nations around the world, this is the gospel that they believe. You can probably remember a picture of Coptic Egyptian Christians wearing orange robes on the shores of the Mediterranean Sea in North Egypt, surrounded by executioners in black robes, ready to end their lives and spill their blood in the sea, if they would only reject Jesus. That was their only way that they could save their lives. And these people, this is the gospel they believed because they were willing to say, I will never reject and deny my Lord and Savior, my Master. Even if it means saving my own neck, I won't do it. This is the choice that Christians face all over the Muslim world where Ravi Zacharias just got back from several weeks of preaching in Iraq and Iran, and other places around the Middle East. And as he did this, believers were saying, do you understand that if I gave my life to Christ, it would mean my execution? And they said, yes, but he offers you this life, and they will gladly pay that price. And we really struggle in America. Our gospel is, we're not, no one's got a gun to us, but it's, it's awfully uncomfortable these days. You really believe that Jesus, and the things that he says? Uh, and so many believers, many false believers, are turning away at huge numbers right now. Huge numbers. And so while I could have come to you this morning and talked about Houston or talked about racism, uh, all those things are important and are deserving of the sermon, I felt it incredibly important to impress upon you the need to contend for the faith, to contend for the gospel, and to first of all make sure that you are in Christ because it's through being in Christ that now you're able to go and do good works and share the love of Jesus. You see, if I were to fly to Houston and to get on a boat and go rescue people and provide them with food and supplies and clothing, and if I were to do that, that would be a good thing. But if I didn't tell them about Jesus, if I didn't describe to them the good news of the gospel, it would be in the same way as if those four, believe, those four friends dropping a paralyzed person in front of Jesus and Jesus just saying, you're healed walk away. But Jesus didn't say that. He said, your sins are forgiven. The gospel was of utmost importance to Jesus, the forgiveness of sins, what he offers through the cross. I'll be glad to hang around afterward if you have any questions or thoughts about the gospel. 
Uh, you may have lingering doubts in your own heart, whether I'm saved or not. You may wonder, am I more, uh, do I resemble more of the people that Paul warned Timothy of that are going to depart from the faith? Am I, am I more like those in the book of Jude who see the gospel as good news so that I can live any way I want to? Um, or am I a genuine Christ follower in a relationship, in a trusted relationship with him? be more than happy to help you sort of navigate where you might be today and to help you understand scripturally. More than anything, I'd be happy to help lead you in a prayerful discovery for assurance of salvation. The Bible says that God offers that assurance, that he testifies with us that we are his children in Romans 8. And so God can give you the assurance that you're looking for. Whatever you need to do to get right with God today, I just want you to have the opportunity to do that. So we're going to sing and allow you to respond in whatever way that God has led you to today. Father, we thank you for our time together. We thank you for the clarity of your word. We thank you, God, that uh, you have spoken and that uh, in many ways your word is so clear that that's where the struggle is, that it's so clear that it's difficult for us to make sense of the passages that we fully understand. And so I pray, God, that in the midst of the clarity of the message that you would also grant us repentance and faith. Jesus, you said that uh, no one can come to the Father unless he is drawn. And so I pray that you would be drawing people to yourself all around this room. And I pray for this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.